generally the narrative goes, we implemented something, we discovered stuff, we got stuff fixed, and now look, we have a lot less problems. That's generally the emotional roller coaster, and directors nod along and they get it. Okay, great. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Jerry Perullo, founder, advisor, professor, former chairman of the board for the FSI SAC, and former CISO for the Intercontinental Exchange, which includes the New York Stock Exchange for those who are not familiar. We're talking today about what is overrated in cybersecurity, and it's a very thought-provoking conversation. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real pleasure to be here, Alan. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your current roles? And I, I say roles plural because it seems like you're a man about town. Yeah, that's right. It does seem to be quite a bit. So in March 1st, I officially retired from 20 years being the Chief Information Security Officer of Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE. Congrats. Thank you very much. As you might expect, I started planning that a little bit beforehand and spent about a year winding down, getting an awesome successor in place and handing things over and whatnot. So what that ultimately turned into is a number of things. I'm a professor of the practice at Georgia Tech. That's pretty interesting. So I teach a cybersecurity class called Adversarial Risk Management, actually. It's kind of the whole life of a CISO crammed into a semester. I'm also a founder uh, for, of a company called Adversarial Risk Management. How funny is that? And you know that kind of gelled from March 1st, where it was, uh, hey, let's do a little bit of consulting and you know maybe put some irons in the fire to a full-bore startup now and got engineers working on product, and it's really going to be a full program management cybersecurity program management platform right for, on. Non-cyber, for non-cyber executives, which is uh, an interesting and unique take. Then I do a lot of advisory work for cybersecurity companies, for startups that are actually you know, looking for voice of the CISO and what would you think about this. I screen a lot of deals for a whole lot of venture capital firms and some private equity firms in the cybersecurity space. And I'm also a consultant to a number of companies to help them establish a cybersecurity program, which dovetails right into that startup work. Holy cow, that's a lot. You are a busy fellow. Yeah, it is. All right. So we were talking earlier about this idea that there's a lot of things in cybersecurity that are frankly overrated. And uh, you and I have gone through a few of these together. So I kind of compile a list and I'm just going to fire off some questions. You're going to give us your hot take here (laughs) on why these things are overrated. So let's start with patching. You have told me before that patching is overrated and even wrote an article on LinkedIn about this one. Walk us through that one. Why is patching overrated? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I have ranted about this. And and during my career, I kind of became known, I guess, for being a contrarian CISO. And, but I swear it wasn't just to get a rise out of people. I think a lot of it was true, organically driven furor <laughs> about <laughs> the knock-on effects of, of the hype machine and overemphasizing some things. So, I mean, if something's broken, you need to patch it, patch it. I don't mean to say that that actual activity is overrated, but rather that it's overemphasized. And this whole kind of vignette started with the Equifax breach and in particular the congressional hearings that came after it, Mm -hmm. right? And if you remember, that turned into headlines that said, this is all one employee's fault. One person didn't patch something and they were supposed to. And I think that's a totally horrendous outcome because what what that drove 
was a lot of people thinking, oh yeah, cybersecurity, I heard about that. We apparently need to patch everything, right? <laughs> right. And then of course you have this 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 kind of vicious cycle where people see that there's a demand there, so they create patching products, which is you know a noble cause and something that has to happen. And there's some great products out there, but then those companies and their investors are driven to further over dramatize the panacea of patching and how that's going to solve the whole world's problems. So what I mean specifically is when I say it's overrating, overrated is. First of all, patching is to address a known vulnerability in a piece of software, right? So that means that the vulnerability has to already be out there, has to be profiled, has to be understood, and the manufacturer has to have actually created some kind of fix for it. So it means any zero day, so anything that is previously undisclosed by nature will not have a patch. So if your only defensive strategy is to patch things, you're 100% sure you will have absolutely no defenses against any kind of zero day and anything that's external facing. Right. But then on top of that, we used a lot of bug bounty, and I'm a huge bug bounty fan, and not for any particular bug bounty platform either. I'm platform agnostic, and just the whole concept of it. We did a ton of it, and it took a while, right, politically to, to get comfortable with that. And then we did a lot of M&A, so we had a lot of companies with existing security programs that we'd bring in and say, hey, welcome to the fold. We're going to start a bug bounty tonight. And it's absolutely panic. What are you nuts? What you, how can you do that? But hey, you're the acquiring company and you've been down this road with even more sensitive assets, so you must know what you're doing. So we spent a lot of money overall on, on bug bounties. And it wasn't because we had a lot of problems, it was because we had a lot of assets. We, we had okay. thousands, literally thousands of apps that were under the program. And we ran private programs. But having that and seeing the, the stuff that comes in, I could tell you that a patch was the fix maybe 10% of the time. Right, okay. For, for let's say crits or highs, yeah, right? Yeah. Anything critical or high, that's what you really care about. And of that, patching was so rarely the issue. It normally was was misconfiguration. Yeah. Right? Just straight up over permissioning, turning something on that shouldn't have been, debug mode is still on. All of these things that have a righteous application, but were done in the wrong time. Right. So nothing to do with a patch there. And then your in-house coding errors, you know, that's not even under the guise of patching. Mm-hmm. Right? The patch industry has nothing to do with that. It's AppSec and you ultimately kind of, in essence, patch because you ultimately make a, a release to fix that. But that's not under the, the industry guise or the Gartner moniker of patching whatsoever. So you put it all together, and if you have this whole team that's really overly focused on patching, you're really missing, I would argue, north of 80% of the causes of things that can actually lead to a problem. You know, I think overexposure is a much more common problem. You know, for example, if you have RDP exposed, and there is, and there has been in the past, an update from Microsoft. Hey, there's a problem here. And if somebody sends a malformed packet or a malformed request, they can get access without even authenticating. If you patch to solve that, you may overcome that weakness in the protocol for a moment. But if you still leave port 3389 open to the internet, I can tell you, you're going to have a problem again in six (laughs) months. Why why is your RDP talking to the outside world in the first place? Yeah, and name anything, right? SSH or uh, NTP even, you know, just about anything you can have, you have to keep an eye on it because you're going to have this cadence of vulnerabilities disclosed. Right. And and again, the zero days might be happening today and you don't even know. Right. So patch it if, if, if you can anyway, but get it off the line. Get it off the internet first. Right. I get it. I get it. So it's just a prioritization schema. And and to your 80% and 20% rule, if 20% of the time patching is the problem, then 80% of your program should not be focused on yeah, that 20%, right. right? Like yeah, scale it, scale and, it and, proportionally. You know, I, I think another thing is the internal versus external, right? So, yeah. uh, and if you're patching internal stuff at the expense of not 
securing things that are external, you're probably diverting resources in the wrong way. Yeah, I like the sound of that. I mean, that, that's just that's common sense. You know, effort proportionate to problem, right? Mm-hmm. All right, right, so how about the next one? You have said encryption is overrated, and this one is really interesting to me. I wanted to hear more about this one. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. Each of these little um, grenades that I toss out there, the minute that you repeat it back to me, I think, oh, man, I'm never going to live this one down. But, you know, it, it is pretty interesting. If you think about the fundamental idea of encryption, it's you want to be able to pass something through enemy hands, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's it. So. In the old days, you had symmetrical encryption and then Caesar cipher and leading up to Enigma and that sort of thing where someone would encrypt something and someone had to have previously established that secret key. But the idea was you had someone physically walking through enemy territory. Later, that became radio, right? And yep. In a battlefield scenario that's very real today, you actually have RF transmissions that other people can hear. So encryption is not overrated in those scenarios. And if, if that's still true, where things are passing through enemy hands, and again, Battlefield RF, probably the top, if that's still true, encryption is really important. But then on the internet, things are, are a little different. Right? And early on, we had this notion when, when the internet came around, you'll remember it, not to date you, but I think you're in the same league as me there. But right, we were all told, hey, this is not a private network anymore. It's the internet. So you don't know where the hell it's going to be. It's going to be in enemy hands. You have to encrypt everything. And so we just assumed that every packet that goes from me to you is going to go through anybody who wants. And I think the average lay person, certainly the average IT person, if they were asked, how difficult is it for a random person on the internet to be able to capture your packets if you communicate over the internet? They would say it's it's not difficult at all. It's very easy. Right. And I don't think that's true. And you know, exhibit A is all the, the BGP hijacking mania. Yeah. Right? So once every 18 months, <laughs> when there is this major, never really explained whether it's malicious or a mistake or whatever, but when there's this rerouting of all the, this country's traffic through China or whatever it is, everybody's up in arms. Mm-hmm. You know, God forbid, how can you allow that? Somebody's traffic over the internet is going through enemy hands, yet we were all operating under the assumption that everything we do goes through anybody's, any adversary hands. So it has to be one way or the other. It can't really be both. Right. So in any event, we spend so much time worrying about encryption and encrypting things and whether it's encryption at rest or whether it's um, in transit or anything else like that, that I think sometimes we blind ourselves, you know, especially on internal tools and going back to like some major data theft, you don't hear a lot out of all of these breaches and we know them all, right? Every one of them, we've all seen the charts with how many hundreds of millions of records and that sort of thing. You not only do you not see encryption being defeated, you don't see known deprecated old assailable protocols being involved in those breaches. Mm-hmm. But you also don't see clear text protocols being the problem. You don't hear, well, this, pro- oh man, they were just FTPing and therefore this adversary captured everything. Right. You know, I mean, you hear about hobbyists and, and people like us in an internal network saying, oh, look, employee X, you're using an unencrypted protocol. We were able to sniff it out because we own the network and we run it. Sure. Right. But right. on actual breaches that are being conducted over international networks, open networks, you never hear about that manifesting. So I'm going to argue, though, that encryption at rest could potentially be a real foil for those kinds of breaches you're describing, right? If somebody raids the database and finds the 10,000 records, or the 10 million records or the 100 million records or whatever all the, the inflationary stats always are in these things. Yeah. If those things are encrypted at rest, eh, now we've got a preventative measure, don't we? 
No. <laughs> all right, let's hear it. I, I love just jumping right to it, right? So first of all, what, what does encryption at rest really even mean, right? Like when is data truly at rest? You know, you could argue it's at rest when it gets inserted into a database and the tables themselves, mm-hmm. or when those tables are actually written to, to disk. And if you get fixated on spindles, and I remember, you know, a CISO once you know, bragging that every spindle was encrypted, right? That, that was actually right. what they used. So they were talking about that in particular. Then, you know, don't forget about solid state drives and that mass right, migration right. anyway, right? So if that counts, if a solid state disk counts for at rest, then why doesn't a database, you know, blob in memory? Why isn't that at rest too? Right. If memory counts, then why not cache? And then why not a CDN hosted edge cache? And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and if you're against anything being in memory, then why? It's not in transit, all right? And, and in transit and at rest are, are, you know, not mutually exclusive concepts anymore, right? Data has to be one or the other. Yeah, that's a good point. You can see it gets into what I call a beer discussion pretty quickly. But in any event, what I'm getting at is, assuming it is at rest, whatever you decide is, is going to be that, what TTP, you know, what attack vector really abuses that? You know, I mean, if you, and I, I'm not saying you're a, a secret black hat hacker here, but, you, you know, you got you got. Well, you never flu. know. <laughs> yeah. You have the skills. So, I mean, if you're going to attack something, and the first thing you're going to do is log in. Yeah. And, and just download it. Then maybe you're, if, if that's not working out, you're going to escalate privilege to an actual account that has God mode, whether it's a service right. account or whether right. it's an administrator or something like that. Whatever whatever mechanism is in there to defeat, not defeat, but to work with the the encryption at rest, whatever mechanism yeah. is there for the good guys, the bad guys just simply need to intercept that mechanism and, That's right. and it's over. I get your point. Yep. I get your point. Well, but then even be moving beyond your legitimate methods, you have like SQL injection, right? Or something like that. When you do that and you dump a bunch of data you don't even realize it was encrypted at rest. It may be happening, it may not. It's completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It becomes relevant when you get to disk, when you're sitting on a file system and you're right next to the, the blob that's actually holding the data. And if you pull that and you, you run strings against it or you parse it for actual data, boom, finally you're foiled. Aha, it was encrypted at rest. That's the only scenario you're really beating with encryption at rest. If you're there, if an adversary is there on disk next to it, then when they, for one, it's bizarre to think why they would even try that because it would be so pointless. But all they have to do is then figure out, you know, what interfaces with that file handle, with that blob. Oh, it's an application. Org socket is it on? Let me walk up to that. I mean, you have root on this box. Yeah. Read the whole disk. You probably have the app server too. And you probably have some stored procedure or some kind of code that just, invokes the decryption mechanism, pulls the keys in, decrypts it all, and formats it. Because by the way, you also would like to have it delimited, right? You right. have it in JSON or something like that. Right. So 99% of the time, I'd say you end up invoking the decryption routines accidentally right. in the process right. of just through, through, through natural processes. Or, well, natural. Yeah. You, I get it. I get it. They're natural. Okay. <laughs> Unnatural processes. Um, <laughs> all right. Okay. I get that one. I get it. Okay. So how about... Uh, another one you brought up that I thought was really interesting is that short SLAs for addressing critical risks. Uh, you said that was overrated too, that 30 days is plenty good enough. Yeah, you know, I thought about that when I was driving down the road listening to you and Andy, right? And the SLAs came up, as they should. Well, first of all, you know, what are SLAs for when it comes to risk? The idea is, I argue, that they're for escalation and reporting. Okay. Right? And, and that includes board-level reporting. That it's yep. for thematic analysis after the fact. I'd argue that what they are not, and I think this is the other school of thought, is really the driver for how quickly things are going to get fixed. So if you have a a, a critical 
discovery of a critical risk, and it could be an, an actual patchable thing like log4j, right? Or more likely, it's it's a bug bounty logic error, right? They discovered, hey, by the way, um, insecure direct object reference, something like that. Then, if you have an SLA of forty eight hours, which is a sexy critical SLA, versus having one of thirty days mm-hmm. for critical, I don't see how it makes any difference at all. I mean, you need to get that fixed right now. You need to get it fixed tonight. And if you're in an organization where you say, hey, look, someone can exfiltrate all the data right now. We want to fix this tonight. And someone comes back and says, well, hold on. What's the SLA? Then you've got a toxic culture. And all the SLAs in the world aren't going to fix that problem. If, yeah, if no, fair, point fingers. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And that's SLAs used to the negative case. But I think I have seen them used as proper motivation. And I'll flip it around the other way. I've worked for a very large organization in the past that had multiple teams of folks that were in charge of various and sundry things. And if the security team found bad things, uh, they were not the ones to actually do the patching. That got handed off to an infrastructure team who did the patching. And the patching guys would look at the SLA and say, oh, well, I've, you know, I've only got 30 days, you know, or I've got 30 days that it's not 48 hours now. It's I've got a whole 30 days to do this. And they would wait until day 29 to patch or, or in some cases, wait until day 30 to go, oh, you know what? <sighs> Golly, we can't do this in 30. Can we push this to 60? Like I've seen SLAs when enforced, keep that problem at bay. Yeah. I, you know, one other issue that's, on, that's at bay that's lurking here is how good the findings are. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Because if you're bringing really legit crits, you shouldn't be able to kind of intellectually have a conversation with someone that says, well, I'm going to wait to day 29. And I, I know what you're talking about because, I mean, if you actually are showing the screenshot of someone downloading all the data, that's not going to happen. Right. But if you're saying, hey, look, this HTTP method is allowed. And according to this pen test, that's not good. And then they say, well, what can you do with it? And you're like, I don't know, but look, can you please just do this already? We just need to get it done. Then yeah, you're, you're going to get that 29 versus 30, or maybe it's 364 days versus 365, right? Because maybe right. that's a medium or low. Right. But I, and, and that plagues second line function, that plagues GRC groups. I always would just preach this, that you do, don't want to ever undermine your credibility. You don't want to bring weak sauce. Right? Right. you got to be able to reproduce everything, have a video, all of that. And if you don't, then yeah, people are going to abuse your SLAs and push you to the edge. Yep, fair enough. But you know, on the reporting side, the, the reason why I think it's really important, though, is that if you have a 48-hour, I mean, again, if something's on fire, it's got to get fixed in, in two hours or whenever it makes sense anyway. So that, you know, pushing to 47 hours might be just as bad. Right, you know, right. A, a, 40, a sexy 48-hour SLA. But if you have that, then a lot of the things that are prudent to wait, oh, we, we, it's not really that on fire. We got a major release coming a day after tomorrow. Let's just wait, all that. You're just going to end up with a whole lot of violations of the SLA. Right. And what I think SLAs are good for when you have reporting is what I call remediation agility. And that's probably the number one metric that people should be gunning for in security is remediation agility, right? Not, we don't want to ever have any problems, but rather when we do, it's inevitable, we're going to have some, we want to be able to respond relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that 30 days is something that's actually achievable on all criticals. And a lot of them should be done that night. I agree, all of that. But I don't want to tell the board and alert the board until... You know, it goes past that. And then I want to be able to show a trend to say the percentage of these things that are slipping of criticals that are going over. And every one of those should be a really big deal and something to chase. And I think once you get over 30 days, it is. Okay. That's reasonable. That's cogent. And it makes good sense in that in that context of SLA as reporting vehicle. And and I guess to your point, if we're having those 365-day or 364-day or, you know, 47-hour conversations, there's a better way besides FUD 
there's a better way to engage the audience and ensure that these things are actually addressed in a meaningful way. So, okay, all right, I will accept this argument. I will accept that it is overrated to have short SLAs. <laughs> <laughs> You've convinced me, sir. Yeah. Well, you know, in that class that I teach, one thing I say too, because this is closely related to policies, right? And one of the things I talk about with policies is I tell people they should never implement a policy until they're going to have about 80% compliance at the day that it goes live. Yes. Yes. Right. And you don't change behavioral policy, you kind of police behavioral policy. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm I'm a big advocate of if you're, you know, let's say you're starting a brand new program from scratch. First thing you do is run around and find out what is. And then you write a set of policy docs that are what is plus a little stretch. Right. And then each iteration, each iteration you stretch a little further and a little further and yeah. a little further. And yeah. you can let policy be a driver if you only drive five or 10% faster than everyone around you. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Just a little bit, little bits at a yeah. time. And so policy for me gets updated way more often than a lot of the guidance recommends, but that's because it's actually real and real time. If you present a business who's never done these 18 complicated security steps with a policy that says they're doing 26 of them, it's useless. And, and the second it's useless policy, everyone ignores it. And the second everyone ignores it, you've lost the entire game. Your GRC function is now just a bunch of box checkers. And that's, that's to me, a self-fulfilling prophecy that GRC falls into a lot. I think the... Yeah, finger pointers. Yes, yes. And the off to the side, marginalized, all the, all the various ways of describing it, I think it's self-imposed in a lot of ways. And I think it starts with unrealistic policy. Just because you've got a, you know, and this gets that touchy regu regulatory component, you know, like, you know, whatever, even non-regulatory. We're going for an ISO 27001 certification. It says you must have an ISMS. It doesn't say... 1,000% prescriptive, all the 26 steps that have to go into that ISMS. You can have oh, something yeah. that's pretty low-key and realistic and still pass and still get your certification. You don't have to go for this above-the-board, every-checkbox-checked sort of approach. Like, it's just a uh, little random Yeah, I mean, line. and that's people trying to, I call it waving the reg flag, the regulatory flag. Yeah. Right? They're trying to drive off of that, well, the regulators said this, and then yeah. you start digging, you realize, well, they didn't quite say that. They just actually asked a question. Right, right. <laughs> and you're over-interpreting a little bit here. Right, and you're yeah. making assumptions about three layers deep of checkboxes to answer that question when one simple answer could suffice in theory. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I one thing we did that I think was really effective, going back to that GRC credibility, was we paired the red team right alongside GRC under the same leadership and AppSec as well. But it meant that the GRC team got exposed to testing, to ethical hacking, to actually popping boxes. Yeah. And they knew what to ask for. And then they would ask for, hey, I got this report. I think this is a hot vulnerability. I'm about to go walk into this room and ask people to delay this release. Can I get some proof of concept? Right, right. right. Keeps them, keeps them grounded, gives them a more realistic edge and a more realistic tool set that helps them and benefits them. And by the same token, it teaches the red team, I think, that uh, GRC is not just a bunch of policy wonks. Oh, totally. You totally, know? Yeah. And it also gives a chance for the red team to say, well, actually, I'm glad you asked about that because that's totally bogus. <laughs> I can't exploit that. <laughs> right. And, and, and it's a good thing you burned your matches right here and not once you got over into the room with ops. Exactly. Exactly. That's perfect. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. When it comes to IT and security, we can all agree on two things. Complexity is increasing and the manual asset inventory approach no longer cuts it. It's time to adapt. And that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius correlates asset data from existing cybersecurity and SaaS solutions to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate actions, giving you the confidence to control complexity. Sign up for a free walkthrough of the platform at exonius.com forward slash get dash a dash tour. 
That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash get dash a dash tour. All right. So let's see here. Last one that you have said that I wanted to drill into, and then I'll, I'll open the floor for you to just get into whatever else uh, you wanted to cover with this theme of what's overrated. But you said departments that have the word vulnerability in their name, that this is an overrated phenomenon. Oh, nice. Okay. I thought you were going to say I said they should be disbanded. That was in, a, <laughs> that was in an email I, I wrote. Yeah. Now, this, this is interesting because I know most people do have a department. Most big enterprise CISO club type of programs do. And, and I've had them too. Okay, yep. I, I've had a bond management, TVM teams, that kind of thing. And they mean different things in different places. So it may not be completely applicable. But what I've generally seen is that it means that they are vulnerability scanner jockeys. Yes. They, they are running the vuln scanners. And that's some work. And a lot of people in really big orgs with hundreds of vuln scanners We'll have that kind of outsourced to net engineering or something like that. But processing those damn results, right? That, that's the, the beast. And I think, first of all, going back to the beginning of this podcast, vulnerabilities and patches, but then vulnerabilities are just a subset of your total, what I'm going to call risks. And yep. I, I'm saying that like it's a new word that no one's ever heard before, but I'm defining it for the sake of this podcast, or at least my half of it. <laughs> I'm calling a risk a superset of vulnerabilities. And then in that under risk, I'm going to add in those configuration errors, those coding errors, network architecture errors, anything mm -hmm. else like that. And what I keep seeing is that when you have a vuln management team, that when you get reports out of that, they're very tool centric. Right? They're going to be based on the right. output from the vulnerability scanner right. or scanners. Right. And then when I see that go into the boardroom, and that's a big jump, right? I mean, there's a lot of steps before vuln management results end up manifesting in the boardroom. But when I see that in any kind of supervisory or oversight manner, including the boardroom, then I see this kind of emotional journey, the story. And it says, oh, by the way, you remember we invested in this vulnerability management. We have a team. You allowed me to hire seven people, all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Well, anyway, that's been operating great. So we got some graphs for you. And as you can see, we discovered a whole lot of vulnerabilities. And um, some of them were critical, some of them were high. And maybe I'm going to show you over the last quarter or the last year, and maybe I'm going to show you some progress. We have less or whatever. And generally, the narrative goes, we implemented something, we discovered stuff, we got stuff fixed, and now look, we have a lot less problems. Right, right. And that's generally the emotional roller coaster. And directors nod along and they get it. Okay, great. And now that portion of the board meeting is done or that slide is done and they don't know the difference in vulnerabilities and attack service management tool results and bug bounty findings and the red team results and the regulatory exam findings to them it's all cyber risk right and they think you just finished the story but then you turn to the next slide and you go okay now we're going to talk about sast what right and then you go through the same roller coaster of source right. code and then you're going to talk about source composition analysis and open source. And again, you start with, we implemented this tool, we found this stuff. Yeah. And what they end up doing is they end up feeling, once you get to about the third tool, and by the way, once you do it a few quarters in a row and each time you add another tool, right. and some magically disappear, by the way, then they start thinking, when does this end? Right. You know, I, There's a never-ending stream of, of tools, of work products that are creating what I just called risk. So I, I think it's really important that you just speak about them all collectively in a tool agnostic fashion. So I feel the Vuln scanner results, okay. the bug bounty results, the attack service management results, the employees raising their hand and volunteering info all need to go through the exact same triage and adjudication process. Mm -hmm. And they need to be portrayed in parallel in one communication. 
So we had this many criticals and yeah, some of them were verbals. Some of them were the SEC mentioning something and some of them were Volm scanner. Yeah. But don't worry about that because I want the liberty to swap out these tools too, right? I want to right. scan some of these tools and prove them. And I don't want to have to try to bring you around mentally into what that even means. If you're explaining, you're losing. I just want to show every time, am I finding more stuff or not? And am I fixing that stuff? Yeah. And so that's at the high level. But going back to my blowing up the whole department, I think the problem is if you have a department, then they're doing all this rating, all this triaging, all this prioritization in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. They're doing it within the damn Volm scanner results. Yeah. And are you going to have another whole department for attack service management and another one for browse and showdown on Wednesday? You know? Yeah. I think, and I call that GRC, that's totally contrarian. To me, what GRC should be doing is being that clearinghouse of all the tool input and applying the exact same rubric, which is all about exposure and exploitability to me. Right, right. You know, no matter what the tool is. Because even if you get it down to the one pile, there's still that one remaining question of, so you started with, you know, whatever, I'm not going to make up numbers again. You had a million units of risk and you did your stuff and you used your tools and you ran your processes and you hired your teams and now you're down to 800,000 units of risk. There's still the great unknown of what does that really mean? How, how bad are things still? And, and I think I think if you get a uniform methodology and process, and I love the idea of the GRC team being the ones to do that, by the way, that's a really clever twist. You can begin to characterize what remains. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, the GRC team is all about, do, do we need to get people to fix this tonight? <laughs> or right. is it okay? Right. Is it a crit or is it a high? Am I being consistent in all of that? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like that. Okay, so this was the last of the questions from uh, what I'd ferreted out from uh, hunting down your uh, past materials and notes. So now it's wide open. What else is overrated in cybersecurity? Well, you know, I think there's this kind of pattern. I alluded to it earlier when we were talking about, I think it was when we were talking about encryption, about once you create a tool, then you kind of have this perverse incentive to push the problem set. Right. You know, what I tell people a lot is that if you're buying, you should let people sell you solutions and not problems, right? You should identify the problem. Yeah, you know, quantum, there's a really good one, right? And, and you could bundle it into encryption. So I'm not saying quantum's its own overrated thing, but that, that's a good example of it where I bet a lot of CISOs got concerned about quantum in a sales call. Right. And, you know, that's kind of, that's a conflicted venue, right? I think you should have some organic concern about quantum and then go out to the market and say, hey, you know, I, and, and by the way, when you do that, not only are you avoiding buying something you don't need, but more importantly, when there is something you do need, you're coming up with the requirements, right? And you're kind of pie in the sky architecting a hypothetical solution. Wouldn't it be great if there was a product that did this, that, and the other? And then you go to the market and you mm-hmm. find out that mm-hmm. something does 80% of that. That's pretty damn good, right? So, um, I do think that's kind of a, a systemic problem that we have and, and kind of overrating things that are based on, that, that are kind of perversely incentivized to overhype the problem set versus the actual solution. Yeah, and it's not just one company guilty of doing that or any individual company, I should say, because I think they're all guilty of it to some degree, but but it, it's, it's the companies around a collective uh, area in cyber too. So whatever, you're... Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example. Your your XDR vendors are all going to start sharing that same scare tactic, that same horror story, that same problem statement, and then offering their solution. And as an industry, marketing-wise, they get it out there so often that oftentimes, I think, without it being directly from the sales call, we still manage to internalize that problem set anyway. I think sometimes as, as a CISO, I wonder if half the negative thoughts I'm having in my head aren't from 
good marketing campaigns <laughs> as opposed to problems I actually saw. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it, it truly, totally. it, it becomes pervasive. It's not just a point in time sales call phenomenon. It's an entire industry phenomenon. And God oh, forbid yeah. three or four vendors rally around the same cause because then all of a sudden that cause really, really, really matters. And, and if you step back from it and look, especially at the details of your own specific shop or whatever it might be, you're going to find that, you know what? I'm actually not worried about that particular problem. Yeah, I mentioned pairing up GRC and the red team. And, and you know, that's kind of my methodology has always been about testing it, right? You exploit it or it didn't happen and, and prove it and that sort of thing. And I also think that's the genesis of risk identification uh, or any kind of problem you need to solve. So the best way to figure out you need something that you need a solution for quantum is to have some red team scenario that involves quantum. Right, right. Which, which, by the way, we both know is not going to happen for a little while now, and I'd say that's appropriate, and then that, that's when it's time to go to the market and figure it out. Yep. But if you think about encryption at rest, that requirement should have been driven by a red team exercise that resulted in, man, if this data was encrypted at rest, you would have foiled the red team, but you didn't, right? And, and that doesn't mean they have to start in a holiday in. You can have assume breach methodology, red team engagements. Yeah. You could say start with some credentials. Hell, even start with some administrator credentials. Right. But if you do that and prove that the lack of encryption at rest is your weak spot, then you're motivated, it's organic, and you go to the market. But I don't think anyone has ever purchased encryption at rest because it began with an actual red team engagement. Right. No, I would agree. I would agree. I think it's a, it's a sound uh, litmus test, if you will. Yeah, it's a litmus test. Other things that are overrated? A couple other ones. I, I'd say IOCs and deep and dark web. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, fun stuff. Yep, dark web anything I think is... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I just know from years of monitoring and all of that, the hit ratio isn't great. You know, you need to have something that somebody bad not only knows, but has some reason to share with right. their other bad friends. Right. And that generally means a marketplace. So it's pretty limited to things they could sell and it's a little bit late. But that idea that you're going to get targeting in there and them discussing, hey, I think we should hack them and I've got a shell and let's go is a a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I, I would call dark web a very, very post phenomenon versus uh, threat intel is supposed to be a pre phenomenon, and somehow the two got conflated. Good point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the point of threat intel is to predict, right? And then the IOCs. I mean, I think a lot of people are coming around that too. But the idea that something happened and now you need to get the IOCs, well, that's yesterday's news, right? It's going to maybe put in protections from what happened last week. Yep. Burned sources. One hundred percent sure of that. So, um, yeah, I think that's definitely overrated. Yeah, well. and I, you know, the very first time I was exposed to the concept of threat intel, it was presented to me as, look at all these IOCs, right? So, <laughs> conflating those two terms, which already is its own yeah. problem area. But, but you know, this, this idea right. that, you know, what threat intel should be is a predictive precursor that gets you out in front of the problem before the problem occurs. And what IOCs are is an after-the-fact, you know, evidence of the bad thing already occurred somewhere that gets shared around in various forms and fashions that the bad guys probably have access to as well. By the time everybody in the, you know, I'm going to pick on somebody here, whatever, the, you know, whatever, healthcare ISAC, by the time every single hospital has received the IOCs, you can figure that probably the bad guys that generated those IOCs have moved on and have different ones now anyway, because they know that list is Absolutely. out there, you know? So, so that's another one of those pre and post phenomenon that drive me bonkers and conflating, you know, IOCs with threat intel, just, just like conflating dark web with threat intel is, it just makes no sense. Yeah. To and, me. and think about how much we all invested. I'm using a past tense, but I know it's present for a lot of people. <laughs> we all invested in trying to automate the IOC flow. Yes. Right? We wanted to suck down these feeds IOCs and we wanted to automatically, okay, searching for them could have some value. All yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe someone's already infected, but preemptively blocking them, placing them everywhere doesn't make a ton of sense or looking for future occurrences of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now what I do think makes sense, it's a lot less algorithmic, 
is gleaning themes from IOCs. Yep. You know, so if, and IP addresses are probably the most useless IOC, but just to try to even on, on that, yeah. if you then enrich all your IOCs with provider or something like that, and you find, man, DigitalOcean seems to have a ton of these IOCs we keep ingesting, and we don't have any legitimate business coming from there, maybe we should block all of their prefixes. Right. That's a thematic output of IOC ingestion that could be valuable. Yeah, maybe, there you I don't go. mean that crap on DigitalOcean at all. I'm just using them like I would AT and T. If right, you're not if they're not hitting you for revenue creation, but they are in some IOCs. And hey, yeah. And then on domain names, I think it's a lot easier to figure out the logic on that. If every IOC ends in .pw, right? If you keep seeing these domains of like, hey, make sure that you don't see any callouts to blah 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 .pw. Maybe at some point you figure out I should just you know, can the entire .pw yeah. top-level domain. Exactly. That, to me, is a beneficial output. Yeah, no, I like the thematic approach, and it, it makes me think of MITRE ATT&CK as well, some some of what we're going through here. there's it, MITRE ATT&CK, to me, elevates IOCs to kill chains, and yet, at the same time, isn't necessarily thematic in the way you're describing, but sometimes, inadvertently, I think is. I don't think thematic is its goal, I think its goal is specific kill chains, right? But sometimes those kill chains are thematic. As you as you sift through MITRE ATT&CK and you realize, well, gee, every time anybody does this, they escalate this away. Maybe I should yep. block this away from happening. It's that same sort of thematic analysis available to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I, I have this whole idea, my, my taxonomy of, of choice for threats, everybody has one, right? Some people organize by the threat actor, yep. is it nation state versus criminal, whatever it's going to be. My big spiel is threat objectives. Like, what, what's the desired right. objective right. of the adversary? And if you, I do find there's a tighter correlation between TTPs and objectives. Yes. Than yes. TTPs and threat actor. And so, if if you've assessed at a threat objective level that hey, we'd be a hot target for, I'm going to use a weird one, a non non public material information theft, NPMI right. theft, right? right? Insider trading. I'm using that one because not it's not everybody's game. But if you figure out that it is your game then that's a threat objective you need to worry about. There is good intel, and I'm talking about strategic intel, dossiers on when Fin7 was going after news wires and that kind of thing. Yep. And if you look at those TTPs, that's worth indexing on because they're likely to need to be required to manifest in a theft of MMPI. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay, interesting. Um, but I'm going to pivot here. We're going to get off of the um, what's overrated, and I'm going to ask you one question that's the current question du jour for every guest and that is you are given a magic wand and you can wave it and you can change one thing and only one thing in cybersecurity. what do you change i think that conflict of interest bit that i mentioned earlier if there was something I mean, it's a magic wand right so we can stretch a little bit here like my whole theory on campaign contributions mm-hmm. i'm getting there i know i'm walking away for a minute here <laughs> is that it would be awesome if all campaign contributions are required to be anonymous Somehow, right? Give all the money you want to your cause, but they can't find out you gave it. So there's no way you could ever ask for any favors. Right. Well, maybe you gave it to me. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. That that would just cure all problems in campaign contributions. Very hard to do in practice. But it's almost the same problem in the cybersecurity industry where if people that had a conflict and stood to gain from a, a certain message weren't the ones that were able to espouse it, and maybe that would back down on a lot of the the kind of the hype that we have and a lot of the 
problem emphasis over the solution emphasis. Mm-hmm. And again, lots of challenges, but you promised that this wand was magic. There you go. It is a magic wand indeed. All right. Well, Jerry Perullo, I want to thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Before we unplug, did you have anything you want to plug for your listeners? I understand. And I want to mention this. Part of the reason Jerry sounds so good on this show is he's got a real microphone and a real headset. And there's a reason for that. Perfect. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was just thinking I needed to. Yes. So I have a podcast that I started the day I retired called lifeafterciso.com. And I got the domain on there. It's on all the major platforms. And I mainly have been going through kind of how we started this. So what it's like to be a professor. I talk about a cybersecurity board director and opportunities in that area. Talk about angel investing, advisory work. So if anyone, and of course it's not just limited to CISOs, but if any tech execs want to get some inside scoop on what it's like once you leave the day job and some of the things that I think people should do or that I wish I had done more of three or five years out, tune on in. I love it. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you again. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.